If you have your, your Bibles open, please do uh, turn there to, or keep them open to Isaiah 42. I do hope many of you have been able to enjoy the, the Advent devotional put together by Matt Sears, if that's how you say his name, as he, he walks us through chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah uh, as we build up in this season of Advent together. Isaiah, where we are this evening, Isaiah chapter 42, it's what is described as the first of the four servant songs. Other servant songs are throughout uh, Isaiah. And in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord can be understood really in a, it can be understood in a corporate way uh, as the people of Israel. And it can also be understood in an individual way addressed to the king of Israel. Mainly because the king was to represent Israel and Israel was intended to be a blessing to the nations. They were supposed to live out their identity uh, as the Lord had given it to them, to be a light to the nations, and that the king was to lead them in that as well. Because if you read uh, chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah, uh, you'll see that they are just packed full of God's anger and God's judgment uh, against his people because of their continual disobedience, because of their continual idolatry. Uh, They just live very much like the nations around them. Called to be light, they so often just walk in the dark. And so chapters 40 to 55, they signal a change of fortune, really. As in uh, 587 BC, well, God's people are they're called out of exile in Babylon, uh, as they're, they're called to be set free. They're redeemed by the Lord, and he sets them free, freedom uh, from, from imprisonment, free, freedom from uh, being oppressed under the Babylonians. And in a sense, it's like a, a new exodus. It's an echo of, of Exodus uh, previously in the Bible. But it, as it points forward to really a true and a better exodus, the freedom and the redemption found in Jesus Christ. As we see from uh, verse 1 to 4 of Isaiah 42, uh, the first picture of the servant of the Lord is that he is the just and gentle servant. The just and gentle servant. And we're given that picture, that, that view really, of this servant of the Lord from verse 1 to 4, as he says these words. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings the islands will put their hope. Chapter 42 opens with the words of the Lord directly speaking through Isaiah. As he calls his people his chosen servant. In other parts of Isaiah he describes his people as his son. As Israel can be described as both God's servant and God's son. So when we, we think about these, these, this passage, these first, the first verse especially, uh, the words of Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 really are echoed and then fulfilled in Matthew's gospel. As we're told at Jesus' baptism, at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
As Israel is described as God's son and God's servant, it points to the blessed, beloved son, the true and better son, the son of God, our Lord Jesus. And what is this servant, this son like? Well, Isaiah gives us two perspectives. He's really both just and gentle. He's just because uh, he will bring justice to all the nations in the world. We think of Matthew 28. All authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus. Therefore, he has authority throughout the world to bring justice, to judge the whole world. And that day will come. God's final justice will come as God will bring a day of judgment and a day of justice to the whole world. Not by the standards that we keep, but by God's standards himself as he will come to bring justice final justice true justice to the world but as we reflect at this time of year and advent we initially remember well his first coming of his coming into the world not to condemn us but to save us and what is the picture we're presented of by this glorious majestic god what is the picture we're presented by him of this glorious and just servant. Well, the Lord, he speaks of himself like this. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Because all of us, I'm sure, we all need a God who is tender to us, as we are at times battered by life. As maybe, perhaps for For some of us, our sin has been just staring us in the face like a reflection in a mirror and we cannot get away from it. Well, if that is is you, then we can find comfort in the Lord. As the Puritan Richard Sibb says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's from his book, The Bruised Reed. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We cannot sin ourselves out of God's love because of his amazing mercy for us. If you feel like maybe you've been bruised because of your own errors, your own faults, failures, and sin, then God comes close to us and he treats us tenderly. Jesus comes to us graciously. Or perhaps for some of us, maybe our suffering is actually not due to our own actions, not due to what we have done, but maybe just because of, we, we, of the fact we live in a fallen world, in fallen bodies. Maybe at times you've been struggling with getting around physically, uh, just those, that battle of your body breaking down. Or maybe it's your mind that has just gone to anxious thoughts, waking up two, three in the morning, thinking about what tomorrow might bring or might not bring. Or maybe you're struggling with the thought of Christmas uh, and the grief that sets in as a result of that. How might we respond in light of this passage? How, God, how might God bring us comfort? How might he draw close to us? Well, we find comfort in the Lord Jesus because he is near. As Spurgeon says, in the trials of our lives, he says this, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. As it says in Matthew 11, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He comes to us gently, tenderly, 
There are times, I'm sure, where we do not understand what is going on in our lives. We do know that we can trust the Lord. We can trust his heart. That's for this reason that our Lord Jesus is a just servant, but he's also gentle with us. He draws close to us, dwelling among us in the incarnation, that we would have life and peace in his name. And that is why we praise him. We praise him because he is the glorious God, and yet he draws close to us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but he is full of tenderness and compassion and grace to us. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to sing praises to God for who he is. And we're going to sing a new song. And then after we've sung that, we'll just have a time of open prayer, just short prayers of thanksgiving and, and adoration, and just to give thanks to, to the Lord for who he is and what he's done for us. So we'll sing uh, together a song called uh, Praise His Name, and then we'll have time of open prayer together. Please be seated. So as we carry on in the passage in Isaiah 42, uh, we've seen that the servant of the Lord is the just and gentle servant. And secondly, as we carry on through, we see that he is the sovereign servant, the sovereign servant. The Lord declares that he is like no other, no other gods, like no other nation, no other God that any other nation has. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he is the one who gives life and breath and everything to people everywhere. And yet even his powerful and majestic, this powerful and majestic God says that he can call his people by name and take them by the hand. That the Lord of all things comes near to his people, sealing them with a relationship, a covenantal relationship, a relational contract that cannot be broken, even though his people continually try. As he promises to liberate his people from their enslavement and bondage under the Babylonians. As the nations looking on and the people of Judah also wonder, well, why would we want to worship this God and not the God of all the nations? The God of other nations seem to have their own gods. Why should we follow this God? In other words, in whose authority will all these things be done that he promises? Well, we're told just that in the standout verse, really, in verse 8. As it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The Lord says, do not compare me to other gods from other nations around you. I am not like them. In fact, as he's often described in the Old Testament, he is a a jealous God, not in a bad way, but in a good way. It's like if your husband or your wife were to say, I'm I'm going on a date with someone, you would say, no, you're not. You're definitely not, because you have a jealous love for them. You want to pursue them. You want to love them. And in the same way that the people of, of Judah had been flirting and throwing themselves at other gods, or rather the idols, uh, like the other nations, the Lord comes and says, I am the Lord, and I will not share my glory with anyone else, with anything else. All those other lovers that they've been chasing, they're not even gods, but they are just dead idols. As the Lord says, don't go 
and worship them. Rather, come and worship me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I won't share my glory with anyone else. Give glory to me alone is what he's saying. Only I am worthy of your worship. Which as we think about about that element of glory and worship, when we reflect upon the miracle of the incarnation of the Apostle John, he, he points our gaze to Christ and tells us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we look to Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of the glory of God. As we are led by the Spirit to worship, to worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It's only when we look to Jesus that we have a taste of the goodness and the glory of God, that we receive all his blessings through him. The the Puritan, uh, John Owen, he writes about this in his little book called The Glory of Christ. As he says, by beholding the glory of Christ, by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Rest to our souls. Which is in contrast to where we might perhaps look to try and find rest. Maybe physical rest is good. Emotional rest is good. But actually rest for our souls is found when we draw our eyes up to see Jesus, to see his glory. As Owen goes on to say, our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passion and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace, from Romans 8. If we meditate on that truth and we look look to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us, we find not only peace, we find real, true contentment in the Lord. Jesus fulfills us entirely. When we meditate on that, then the temporary concerns of the world, they start to melt away like butter in a hot pan because we're captivated by the glory of Jesus. We're captivated by him. We find peace in all that he has done for us. In a world, in our lives, when they feel a little bit out of control at times, because the mind set, led by the Spirit, is life and peace, because he leads us to the Prince of Peace, Jesus. As the Lord delightfully gives us a picture of his nearness and care for his people, as he says to his people, I will take you by the hand. Like a father to a child, that is how the Lord speaks of his relationship with his people. And that is what we enjoy in Jesus, that intimate relationship with him. That the Lord, as the sovereign one, declares that he will draw close to his people and lead them out of bondage. As he says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those that sit in darkness. As the Lord, he liberates his people out of the darkness of exile, 
despite their idolatry, despite their waywardness, despite their continual rebellion against him. And yet again, uh, but yet again we're told that very later, later in this chapter even, many of the people of Israel, they're too blind, deaf, and stubborn to continue to walk in God's ways, despite the Lord's promise to them. But where Israel and their leaders fail, the final sovereign servant would be faithful. As the powerful Lord Jesus comes into our world in weakness as a baby and then grows up and leads us by the hand to glory, that we would experience the goodness and glory of God in Jesus. When we were sitting in the darkness in our sin, the Lord Jesus opens our eyes to see him, that we would be free. As the hymn says, my chains fell off, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Jesus sets us free. He liberates us. He forgives us of all of our sin, all of our depravity, all of our filth is washed away. We are free, free to worship him. We've been redeemed and forgiven, set free from all of our sin, from all of our sexual sin. The Lord remembers it no more. Freed from the chains of addiction, be that drinking or drugs or pornography or gambling or even addiction to food or anything else. The Lord liberates us from that. We've been forgiven from our our slanderous thoughts, our gossip. We've been forgiven from a heart full of anger and instead given a spirit of gentleness and self-control. We've been given a new mind and a new heart to live for Jesus and his glory the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the amazing grace delivered to us in Jesus. As we were prisoners, prisoners to sin, but now we have been set free. And yet so often, we like Israel, copy those around us. We, we too often go back and put on, put back on the shackles of sin and return to slavery as we return to who we were before Christ rather than living as who we are now in Christ. So just let's just take a moment just in this space now, just in the quietness of our own hearts, to confess our sins to the Lord and to, to recognize that at times we do turn back, we have turned back um, to sin rather than living in the freedom that we have in Jesus. So let me just leave uh, two minutes of quiet, just a minute or two of quiet as we just come before the Lord and confess our sins to him and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Well, as the Lord reveals the, the character of his servant, we've seen that he is the, the just and gentle servant, uh, the sovereign servant. And lastly, we have a picture of the victorious servant, the victorious servant. As Isaiah continues to go forward in his prophecy, he turns to all the nations, as he says in verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. Where previously 
the Lord's people, uh, previously uh, the Lord calls his people, the ones uh, who he's made a covenant with. Uh, he leads them out of exile in Babylon. Now he is calling all people everywhere, uh, everyone to sing his praises. As Isaiah prophesies later in verse 10, to all those who go down to the sea and all at the island, all at all the islands and all that live in them. As the Lord wants all people from everywhere to praise his name. As it says in Psalm 150, verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Isaiah, he repeats this throughout these verses, this, this sense of praise. He wants it's a it's a, a command almost to the, all the nations, all the places everywhere to sing to the Lord and let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout out from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. But we might ask, well, what is, why would we do that? Why, would the, why are the nations called to praise his name? Why would they be called to, to sing praises to him? Well, because the Lord, he promises deliverance. As the Isaiah says in verse 13, the Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. The Lord promises victory, victory over his enemies. For God's people, that was the truth that despite their continual rebellion and rejection, their stiff nakedness, their sin, the Lord would take them by the hand out of exile in Babylon, in Babylon and deliver them to be with him in his place. And for today, that really points us forward to the true and ultimate exile, the, 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 the coming out of exile. As by nature, we are exiled from the Lord because of our sin. We are exiled from him and excluded from his presence. But now we can sing his praises because we enjoy an end to that exile. That's through the, the true servant, the Lord Jesus. He brings deliverance from slavery as he brings freedom that we would praise him. As he takes the full punishment for our sins on the cross as his death pays in full for all of our sins when we trust in him, he declares victory over them. And all of the shame, all the guilt is taken and paid in full. And in the resurrection, the Lord declares victory, declares victory over it all. Jesus is victorious. As the Lord Jesus, in his resurrection and ascension into heaven, is declared as the Lord's anointed king, the one that, that Psalm 2 speaks of, the Lord who has been installed in heaven, enthroned in heaven. And it speaks about that in Psalm 2, saying that the Lord just laughs at the nations that try and conspire against him. He laughs at them. He mocks them. Because at times, as we, as we think about this, as we really believe this in our lives, that the Lord has the victory, that he reigns over everything. How does that shape how we live today, day to day? Maybe at times we feel like we might be, as Christians, at times feeling, a, feeling like we're losing the battle, if you like. We might be tempted maybe to think, well, does it really matter if I stay faithful 
if I remain holy in the, the way that I live, none of my friends seem to be Christians. So how do I keep going? The world seems at times crazy and engulfing our children with lots of crazy ideas. Maybe at times we feel defeated. Or maybe you look to other religions like Islam seems to be having far more impact in the culture and the country than Christianity has right now. But we must remember ultimately that that Jesus is reigning, that he reigns over all things, that he has declared the victory. And in Jesus, we have that victory. We share in that victory. It might not look like it today, but we can claim that for ourselves. That through his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, the Lord reigns. He is sovereign over everything. He is in control over everything. It might not look like that at times, but the Lord reigns. And so as we reflect on that, at that in this season of Advent, we must remember that the Lord, he comes to deliver us from our sins and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Just as Psalm 2 says, the encouragement or the command even is for us to kiss the Son, to come to the Son and to be saved uh, as we come to him now, saved from ultimate judgment as well, that we would bow before him in adoration and praise because the Lord reigns in heaven. Therefore, we can we can sing of this and we can speak of this to our friends in all the events that are happening through Christmas and all the conversations that we have. We want to speak about the Lord Jesus who is the king, who reigns over everything. He's the one that's in control of our lives, not us. And so as we speak to neighbors and friends, family members as well, we can speak of that, the, the peace that we can have because the Lord reigns.